The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls, good night. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is ABC News reporter Genevieve Shaw-Brown, author of The Happiest Mommy You Know, Why Putting Your Kids First is the Last Thing You Should Do. ABC News reporter and mom of three, Genevieve Shaw-Brown, found there was something very wrong with the way she was feeding her children healthy, organic meals, and dressing them in beautifully coordinated outfits while she was scarfing down a McDonald's breakfast in yoga pants. This helped Genevieve ask the question, what happens when you do for yourself what you instinctively do for your children every day? The Happiest Mommy You Know gives moms permission to finally treat themselves better. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, uh, Genevieve. Uh, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay. Uh, one of your testimonials and uh, women who support you says that... It, uh, a family, and agrees with you, says a family's happiness depends on prioritizing mom's happiness and well-being, which is obviously what your book is all about. That's really, for some reason, very difficult for moms to do. Um, it so absolutely let's, is. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I had the same issue that I think a lot of parents face, which is that, first of all, there's a lot of guilt associated with uh, even just taking care of your basic needs. Um, but there's also the fact that I found for myself and for other parents I know, sometimes you don't even think about it. You're just kind of on autopilot doing everything and anything to make your children happy and never giving yourself a second thought. And so I got to wondering, you know, what would happen if I just did for myself what I do for my kids every day, not taking anything away from my kids, just treating myself with the same love and care that I treat them. And, and that was where the idea for the book began and where the happiest mommy experiment, as I like to call it, sort of kicked off with that, with that one singular thought. How old were you, Genevieve, how old were your kids at that time when you had this, this, this aha moment, like I really have to do something differently and take care of myself? How old were the kids? At the time, my, uh, at the time my uh, daughter was, three and a half, and my son was 17 months old. Uh, my third child had not been born yet, and um, it was about halfway through the experiment that I found out I was going to be having a third child. Um, so they were very young, but uh, when the, when the exper- experiment began, when the idea sort of came to me for this book, and it, it's interesting, though, um, now almost... No, now two years later, it's been two years um, since the idea first came to me, the, um, this, the same uh, rule, the same principle is still 
very easily applied. It really just comes down to one thing, which is treating yourself as well as you treat your kids. It's really that simple, and it's across all the aspects of our lives. I mean, this is not a book about taking a week off to go on a spa vacation. It's not that at all. This is about really taking care of your basic needs. And I I like to make the analogy of the oxygen mask on the airplane. There's a reason why the flight attendants always say, adults, put on your oxygen mask before helping anybody else. And that is because if you're not getting oxygen, you can't help anybody else. And it's very similar when it comes to moms and kids. If you're not taking care of yourself, you're not going to be able to take care of your kids as well as you want to, or at least, you know, that's, that's how it was for me. Well, how do you think as moms we get hooked into that in the first place? Why do somehow we just automatically don't do that? We don't, we don't give ourselves, we don't put the oxygen mask on first. We sort of feel compelled to do it to, everything has to, all our energy has, goes towards our, well, first a new baby and then, and, and then, and obviously in our, in our children. Where do we, have you, I mean, obviously it's something I'm sure you've talked to a lot of moms and, and other professionals. Like, where does that come from? But I mean, I think it comes from love. I, I mean, I, that's where it comes from. If if parenting is not hard, then you're not doing it right. It's supposed to be hard because you want to make this, you want to make a life that is, you know, a good one for your kids and, and set them up to become happy, well-adjusted adults. So I think we just lose sight of ourselves in the everyday you know, day-to-day grind of, of raising children. And, and there are so many wonderful things, of course, about being a parent. But to deny that it is on a day-to-day basis can be challenging is ridiculous. I mean, you know, and it's, it's so easy to get caught up in the minute-to-minute that you don't even think about yourself because you're thinking so much about how much you love your children and how you're, you're trying to give them the best of yourself. But the truth is, I, I believe that the mother is the heart of the family, and everybody else's mood in the house is directly tied to how mom is feeling. I I mean, I, I, I see it in every family I know. And when mom is happy, when mom is at peace, that translates right down to the kids. Um, and so I, I think that in taking care of ourselves as parents and as mothers of people, we're actually giving a gift to our children. I mean, I agree with you. I think you are so right, so on target. Unfortunately, and that's why I think your book is so important, is we don't seem to support that in our society. I was reading a couple other books on, on parenting and in other cultures where when a mom comes home from the hospital, she literally lays in bed and her sisters and her aunts or her or people or help take care of the baby. They nourish her and she has a good six to eight weeks to 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 get healthy and, you know, and and embrace the help that everybody is is giving them. And and we don't seem to do that. So I, I think you're yeah. you're. Yeah, and your book is really good because it makes it it's, sort of, it's a how to book to, to do that, given uh our society and whatever our limitations are, but we can do it because there are very specific practical ways in which we can give to ourselves. And then, in, you know, and it also enhances our relationship with our children, obviously. So, right. And that's the whole goal. You know, my whole goal all along was to be a better mother. Um, and I found that by taking better care of myself, I was able to be a better parent, to be the parent that I really wanted to be, which was 
a happy parent. You know, my kids, um, they're still very young, certainly, but I already see how fast time is flying by. And I want to make this time their young childhood. I want it, I want it to be special. And I want it to be happy. I don't want to wish these years away. And I had found that I was basically in a race from, you know, wake up to nap time to bedtime every day, you know, just getting through it. And I don't want to get through it. I want to, I want to enjoy it. And in order to do that, I had to take a step back and look at how things were completely out of whack, totally out of balance and make some changes. And these are not difficult changes. I mean, these are the, the things I outline in the book are actually pretty simple. I mean, one of them, for example, um, which, which actually changed my night, my life quite literally overnight was, um, getting enough sleep. You know, I was so obsessed with getting my kids to sleep at a certain time. You know, they had a very specific bedtime. We had a very specific nighttime routine. There are absolutely no electronic devices allowed anywhere near their bedrooms. Meanwhile, in contrast, I am in my bedroom, my husband and I in our bedroom, with a, a TV that is so big, you know, you can practically see it from space, and iPhones and iPads and going to bed at all hours of the night for, for you know, with not really accomplishing anything, not really being productive. And so I said to myself, what if I just kind of put the same rules on myself as I put on my kids, making myself a certain bedtime, no electronics in the bedroom. And I did that one thing, that one thing changed things overnight in my home. And I'll tell you a story that I put in the book that I don't, it's a very painful story. I don't like to talk about it, but I think it's important because it really illustrates how quickly things changed. The very next morning after I decided we were going to be going to bed, just like the children do at a certain time, not at the same time as the children, but at a reasonable time for adults, I woke up the next morning and immediately we were getting ready for school and all the chaos of the morning, things were just a lot calmer. And I was walking my daughter to school and she said to me, mommy, I'm so glad you're not mad at me today. Usually you're yelling in the morning. Now that is hard to hear out of a three-year-old's mouth, but it was the truth. And just something as simple as giving myself a bedtime had negated that, had negated all that stress and yelling in the morning. And now certainly things are not perfect every single day. You know, sometimes we're rushing, sometimes things are chaotic, but they're a lot better. And, you know, and, and that was the goal. And that was such a simple thing that I did that, that just changed things very dramatically in our home in the mornings. Yeah. And that's a great story. And it, like you say, if you have these guidelines, which is, you know, which is what you talk about in the book, you're not going to follow them exactly. You're not going to be the, you know, being the perfect mom also is a pro, you know, that if you set yourself up for that in terms of, well, I have to go to bed every night at 10 o'clock and, you know, maybe you can't, but it's, right. it's all about, yeah, it's about guidelines and being, isn't it about being kind to yourself? I think that sort of comes across. It's okay to nurture yourself and be kind to yourself. Um, right. Like, you know what I say? I always say, now I say I matter too. I don't matter. It's not that I matter more than the children. And it's not that the children matter more than me. It's that we're all a family unit. We all have to function as a family and we all have to take care of ourselves so that we can take care of each other, so that we can be a happy, peaceful family, which I, you know, I can't, even though parents come from all different backgrounds and all have all different thoughts about parenting, all different parenting styles, I think that one thing that unites us is that we all want our children to be happy first and foremost. But we are our children's greatest teachers. If we're not happy ourselves, how can we even expect them to know what that is or what that looks like? One of the things that you 
talk about is you put yourself on, quote, the baby diet. So tell us about the <laughs> baby diet. You know, it's the baby diet that actually sparked the idea for the whole entire experiment. Um, I was waking up at 5 a.m. to make my uh, my son, who he's uh, now three, but at the time was 17 months old, to make him these really nutritious, well-balanced meals, you know, the, the, the ratio of protein to carbs to veggies to fruit. You know, I really had this like, nailed down to the science. Um, and meanwhile, at the same time, I was, you know, at the ABC News cafeteria looking for the shortest line, which is usually the comfort food line that's starting down, you know, mac and cheese out of a box. And, and I remember standing in the cafeteria one day and... I thought to myself, I said, you know, I really wish I was like one of these rich people who could afford a nutritionist because if I had a nutritionist, I could eat the same way that Will eats. And then all of a sudden, it occurred to me, I, I was a nutritionist in many ways. I was researching food and figuring out what the best meals were to feed him. And it had literally never once occurred to me to eat the same food that I was feeding him. Never occurred to me. And then it, my... I had this idea, and I said, wait a second, I don't need a nutritionist. I just need to eat the same healthy foods that I'm feeding my child. So I did for a few days. It was five days. You know, and I felt great. I lost, even lost a couple pounds, which wasn't really the idea, but that, that was a great side, side effect. And then after that happened, you know, Good Morning America called and said, why don't we turn your article, The Baby Diet, into a segment? And I said, okay, let's, let's do that. So we did. And then I got to thinking, you know, what about applying this logic of treating yourself as well as you treat your children to every aspect of our lives? And so that's where it began. And so I started, um, you know, I, I talked about sleeping. We, I also started cutting back on my kids' social calendar and actually seeing my own friends a little bit more. I started, you know, I got out of the yoga pants and started dressing myself appropriately as I had been doing for my children all along. I, and, and all these little these aren't hard changes to make, and I think that if somebody decides to read the book, you don't even have to make all of them at once. I wouldn't even suggest that. But you can take a couple of chapters and say, you know what, I can do this today. Because these small little tweaks really added up to big changes for, for us, for my family, and for me, and for my kids. Literally, baby steps, and baby steps are okay, and pick the one, the easiest one, you know, for each family or each mom, it's it's different thing, you know, in terms of deciding what they would do first, let's say. or Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't have to be all taken. It doesn't have to feel like this big project, you know. It doesn't have to be like that. It can really just be one little thing at a time. And once you get certain things under control, for me, it really began with the diet and the sleeping. Once I had those things under control... The other things kind of, they fell into place pretty easily because I was eating better, because I was sleeping more, I had more energy to do other things like exercise, like see my friends, things that I didn't even have the energy to do before. All of a sudden, I, I, I did, and I felt better, and you know, things, things really began to change very quickly. And what about, I think you mentioned this, what about spending more time or having the energy and feeling like you want to, spending more time with your spouse, your partner? Um, that certainly adds to your well-being and, and, and also to the family and to the kids. Yeah, and, and even, and, and we certainly do make an effort to spend time alone. I know that can be very difficult um, depending on a family circumstances. So one thing that I did 
for the purposes of the experiment, in addition to spending time alone when we could, um, was simply using bringing manners, really, back into my home. I noticed that I was far more polite to the people at Starbucks than I was to my own husband. And by that, I mean I said things like please and thank you and I appreciate that and things that I had just kind of let go in my own home. And it's really, I I did a lot of research for the book. So the book is a mix of anecdotes and actual research from different universities and different, uh, you know, uh, health organizations. Um, So it's kind of a mix of those two things. And I found this one study that showed that, um, you know, marital happiness is directly linked to gratitude. So I started instead of looking for things to criticize about the way, you know, my husband either parented or did whatever he was doing, I decided to look at all the ways that he was a wonderful father, which he is, and a wonderful husband, which he is, and use my manners again. And it, and those things, again, they shifted the mood in my home very dramatically. So instead of tension, there was mutual respect and love, which had been, the love had been there all along, but things had gotten kind of out of control. And, your children notice that. They notice when you're bickering with your spouse. They also notice when you're res- being respectful towards each other. And these, again, it, it's not about, you know, going away for a week together. Yeah, that's wonderful. If you can do that, definitely go do it. But there's a million very small things you can do to change the mood in your house to make it a more peaceful place for your children. It has to be ongoing, this behavior change, not something special, as you're saying. The other is icing on the cake. Yes, it's nice to go out for dinner or go on a trip or whatever you do, but you really have to incorporate into the way, this is how you connect with your family. That's what I, you know, this is how you, you mentioned connecting with your husband. Not as well, and and I can identify with that, uh, not connecting as well as you do with the the grocery store checkout person, you're more polite than you are with, you, you can get into a situation like that than with your husband. And respect is key. You mentioned the word respect. Um, cause that's, you, you still love every, you love that person and even respect for your kids and then they respect you more. I think that's a, a really key thing that, that, that you have to take a look at. And I think that that's what, well, that's obviously what you do in your book by making these small change. They're not really small. They're major changes but they don't require a lot. I mean, they just require you being aware that it needs to, that you need to do this and, and then it builds on itself, right? Exactly. And, and that's it. And I think that's the biggest first step is just being aware if your life is out of balance as mine was. Um, I, I didn't even, until that moment in the cafeteria, I didn't even realize how out of control things had become um, and how I was just racing from one thing to the next, completely exhausted, not taking care of myself and thinking somehow that I was doing it all for the kids. And, and of course, I was doing it all for the kids, but it wasn't to their benefit. So, you know, that kind of out of balance life for mom doesn't actually do your kids any favors. You know, it's, it's, and it's not about putting yourself ahead of the kids. It's simply just doing for yourself what you would do for them any day. I talk about, uh, this is a very basic need. I talk about going to the doctor. You know, my kids luckily are pretty healthy, but they, um, you know, I, I estimated that over the course of the first few years of their lives, that we had probably made 30 trips to the doctor, you know, whether it was a sniffles or a cold or a cough or whatever it was. 
and I had been to the doctor in the same amount of time, zero. So when you look at the scorecard of 30 to zero, and you take into account, into account that I had chronic back pain from the time that my daughter was born, I had never seen a doctor about it because in my mind, I, I did not have enough time. That's just, that, that doesn't make any sense. And you're not setting a good example for your kids. You're teaching them your health doesn't matter. That when somehow when you get to be a grown-up, it, you, you don't matter anymore. And that's, that's not true. You know, and taking care of yourself by going to the doctor when you have pain is not being a bad parent. That's being a good parent. That's showing them, that's showing them how, to, how to take care of themselves when they get grown up, too. Uh, don't you think also there has this that little bit of like martyr syndrome? You know, I mean, maybe not something you would one always acknowledges, but it's sort of like, well, I'm just such a good mother. You know, I just do. I'm just you know that kind of martyr thing. I'll just do anything for my kids, and and that makes me a really good person. Which of course you're saying it doesn't 100%. really make you. Yeah, yeah. And I think oh, I actually your daughter's the one I who said it to you. You know, you're yeah, not mad at me, mommy. Yeah, I mean, it, it's like, it, it's, it's so true. And I think that a lot of moms um, sort of suffer. I don't know if suffer is the right word, but they, they have that. Um, it's, you know, you, you, you want to show you're being a good mother by doing everything for your, for your kids, but what you're not doing is setting a good example for them to follow as to take care of themselves. Because if I just ask you the simple question, ask any mother a simple question, you know, would, when your kids get to be grown up, do you want them to take proper care of themselves, to, to, to show themselves love and care? I think every mother would say, yes, of course. So then if you're not doing it for yourself, you're not setting the right example for them. I always remember, and my kids are grown up, three boys, but I do remember with this running around, maybe they were a little older than your kids are now, but with all the activities and, you know, taking, and, and there were some mothers, you know, sort of bragging about, well, my kid has soccer and he has swimming and he has tennis and I have to run here. And I, and there was sort of this kind of glee attached to it. And look what I have to do. And I, uh-huh. I used to think to myself, well, you don't really have to do that. You could pick one sport, which probably that the kid is best at or likes the most. And probably you and he or you and she will be much better off. But there was this kind of competitive, like, I'm doing the most and we're doing the most. And it's a good thing, even though I'm ragged and, and, and so is my son or my daughter. Uh, right. It, and why is yeah. that a good thing? Like, how is it good to run yourself ragged and turn your kids ragged? I don't think it is. Um, I think any reasonable person, if you put, if you pose the question to them like that, why is it a good thing to run yourself ragged or your children ragged would say, huh, maybe it's, maybe that's not a great thing. And I understand, you know, not wanting your kids to miss out on anything, but when you're, they're not, when you're, I have this, I sometimes I say to myself, when you're doing everything, you're doing nothing because you can't possibly, you know, you, you can't, you're missing out on things. You know, you can't be doing everything and also be giving, spending the time together, for example, that I'm sure people want to spend with their kids. And it's, it's hard to cut back, but it's, these are all choices, you know, that you have to make and decide what's the priority for your family and just decide, you know, and take it from there. Well, you have three kids now, so you are a very experienced mom. And <laughs> I want to know what it, because now, and you have the opportunity, you know, with this experiment really to see, okay, how, like examine what were you like with the first? And then now what are you like with the third? And the differences perhaps in their personalities or the way they operate within the family, because you were one way, in, at least in the beginning with daughter number one. Um, mm-hmm. and then different when the third comes into a larger family with lots more stuff going on, but yet I'm assuming that you're much more 
you know, uh, much that you've followed your own um, guidelines. So, yes, differences. What are they? So, you know, um, it's funny. I I thought the majority of the book is written when I only had the, the first two kids, and um, and things were going pretty well. Like, you know, I, I embarked on this project. We got our acts together. The life got a lot more reasonable. Things felt a lot more balanced. I was a lot happier. And then all of a sudden, my third, my son, I have so I have a, a daughter who's five, a son who's three, and now a son who's almost one. And so Luke, my third child, was born. And all of a sudden, things went like crazy again. You know, you know, the babies arrive and everything goes up and like in flames, and every all your plans yes. are are crazy again. So for about three months of Luke's life, um, things were back in turmoil, frankly. You know, I was eating takeout every night. I couldn't exercise because I had just given birth. I, um, you know, I, I was very exhausted because the baby wasn't sleeping and I hadn't put it on my any sort of sleep schedule and I was snappy with my husband. So things went right back to square one. And, you know, my husband said to me, he said, hey, you know, why don't you try reading that book you wrote? And because it, had, it hadn't come out yet, but of course most of it was done. And, I, I said, oh my God, he's right. And I did. And I went right back to doing the same things I had been doing before the third one was born, before Luke was born. And again, things just fell right into place. And now he's almost one. And, you know, my daughter, Addie, she's, she's a five-year-old. She's sort of the caretaker of the family. You know, she's a little bit more type A and anxious, probably the exact same way I parented her, type A and anxious. Um, and my my son Will is really more of a you know he he's a fun loving kind of just always happy sort of kid loves to be the center of attention and my third one Lukey he just kind of goes with the flow you know he's just following around the big brother and the big sister <laughs> he just wants to do whatever they're doing as much as he can participate and and he's and they're they're all a great joy in their own way. Glad you shared that story. And it is at the end because we only have about a minute left. But uh, I think just one thing that you said, it's okay to regress too, because I think that's important because sometimes when you regress and you think, I'm back where I was, and then you sort of give up, but like, you don't have to, you know, you just have to step forward and change things. And um, so, I mean, I think that's important to remember, but also... To remember, the happiest mommy you know, why putting your kids first is the last thing you should do. You can buy your book online, bookstores everywhere. And can you just give us a quick a website we can go to to find out more about you and the book? Sure, GenevieveShawBrown.com. And, of course, uh, the book's available on Amazon. And like you said, bookstores everywhere. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today, Genevieve. Thank you for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. 
You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Are you trying to discover how to thrive in business and follow your purpose? Tune in to Entrepreneur Enlightenment with host Irina Benedict. You will learn how to combine practical business strategies with spirituality so you can grow your business with ease. If you've been searching for purpose, for freedom, for fulfillment, tune in to get your questions answered. Listen live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time and 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Where can you learn about EasyWayPromotions.com's social media marketing, brand positioning, and more? Easy Talk Live. Where can you get tuned into celebrities in the business world? Easy Talk Live. Where can you learn about entrepreneurment? Easy Talk Live. Every week, host Eric EZ Zuli and his celebrity friends talk about global causes, offer tips and tricks that you can use right now on social media, and give you the chance to promote your projects on Easy Talk Live. Every Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Uh, joining me is parenting expert Julie King, author of How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen, A Survival Guide to Life with Children Ages 2 to 7. Drawing on her experience leading workshops for parents and professionals around the nation, parenting expert and mother of three, Julie King, has designed an entertaining and, more importantly, a proven guide for overcoming parenting challenges. Uh, busy readers will find instant help on the morning mayhem, bedtime battles, tattling, doctor visits, and more. Uh, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Julie. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to have you. So, uh, Julie, you have, as I understand it, an undergraduate degree from Princeton and a law degree from Yale. Very smart lady, we have to make that assumption. But you kind of got also trapped into this world like uh, moms uh, feel like they are <sighs> trapped, I guess, uh, or not doing enough. For themselves or or for their families uh, and 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 not feeling good about how to talk to their children, how to manage their households, and getting caught up in all of this chaos, I guess of raising a family, despite all your degrees that's right, that's right. <laughs> I think sometimes we have a, an idealized notion of what it will be like to have children i I think I fell into that trap. Um, I thought. Well, I'll have these young children, and we'll have this wonderful relationship, and we'll have so much fun together. And the reality of it was quite different. There I was with, with three young children trying to get out the door, and it was a real challenge. I find myself raising my voice, telling them, 
you know, hurry up, we're going to be late. It was, it, I was very glad to have some of the skills and the tools that I learned from my friend Joanna and, and her mother's best-selling book that came out when I was a kid um, to fall back on because when you're in, in the trenches moment to moment, it's very challenging. <laughs> And, and, and I, I said, think that's uh, having a degree in, in law does not help when you say the rule is you must put your coat on before we go outside. Kids don't care about those kinds of rules when they're little. And they don't care that mommy has a degree from Yale. It doesn't make any, as a lawyer, as an attorney, right, that, that, that doesn't, that's not part of the picture. It's so. No. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter, exactly. So how do you talk? I mean, because you've got a whole list of things in all of the, the scenarios that you mentioned. I think any mother and any parent uh, has, you know, it, I mentioned a few just in the introduction, uh, lying, tattling, hitting, trying to get them off to school. I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, so where should we start? I mean, how do you learn to talk to your children so that they understand you and they do it? you say, uh, at least most of the time, and make it pleasant. And, you know, as you say, it's a, your book has been just, is a survival guide to life with children yes. ages 2 to 7. Perfect. Yes. Top, so, uh, perfect, you know, yeah. It, description. it seems as though it should be sort of straightforward. We need them to get their shoes on and grab their backpacks and go out the door. So we tell them what we want them to do. And then we find that a lot of the time it doesn't work. Um, and, you know, because if, if it did, of course, we wouldn't have had to write this book. You could just tell them what you want them to do, and they'd do it. Um, so, uh, you know, parents are, what they're wondering is, how do I talk so our kids will listen? And what they really want to know is, how do I talk so my kids will behave, so they'll do what I say, right? Uh, so the, the first big idea I start with, with all the parents I've worked with, is that there's a connection between how we feel and how we behave. It's certainly true for us as parents. If you think about those moments in your life as a parent where you're glad that you're not on reality TV because you've raised your voice one more time or threatened your kids and it really hasn't helped, those are often times when we're under stress ourselves. We're exhausted. We're upset about something that happened at work or we haven't gotten along with our spouse or our partner or we're just tired of hearing the whining and the crying, and we snap. Um, so there, there's a connection between how we behave, how we feel and how we behave as parents, and it's true for our kids as well. There's a connection between how they feel and how they behave. So the first thing I like to look at is the connection between how we talk to our kids and how they feel. Because if we talk to them in certain styles that make them feel resentful um, or uncooperative, well, we're just working against ourselves. Yeah. Give us an so, example, a scenario. Connect that to like an example in the book or, or something, uh, your own personal story. Sure. So, you know, um, if, if a child comes to me and says, I hate Jimmy, I'm never playing with him again, you know, my first instinct is to say, of course you, you play with him. Jimmy's your best friend. We don't, and we don't say hate. I'm denying my kid's feelings. I'm saying you don't, know, you don't feel that way. You, you really don't hate him. It can be very helpful to say, boy, sounds like you're really angry with Jimmy right now. Or something Jimmy did really annoyed you. A child who feels like I understand is then able to say to himself, 
yes, somebody, something he did really did annoy me, and I'm going to tell him that myself. And it helps a child, it helps a child calm down, it helps a child figure out what to do in that moment, and it's maybe instead of punching Jimmy, he's going to go over and tell him, hey, I don't like you grabbing my blocks, I wasn't finished, that sort of thing. Well, it um, validates the child's feelings, and that's what they really need to hear, that validation. Just like we need to hear it, as I'm listening to you, with your partner, or with uh, your your spouse, you need to hear, you, you don't want them to tell you, you shouldn't feel that way, or you're wrong about this. You want them to acknowledge that, okay, that's the way you feel now, or what are we going to do about it, sort of, which you, I guess you're saying, and that's the same way you can talk to a two-year-old on their level, or a five-year-old, absolutely. or a seven-year-old. Absolutely. I, I usually, I, in fact, you know, you, you've nailed it. People come after after they've heard or or read the book, or or they say to me, "Oh, I did this with my with my spouse too. It was very effective <laughs> because this is how we all want to be spoken to. We want somebody to understand first and foremost. I want you to get how I'm feeling, and if you put it into words for a child, that's how they learn." what their feelings are, and that's what they need to do that first before they can figure out how they want to behave. Don't you think we get caught up in we have to teach them the right way? There's some kind of a mantra in parents' heads that, like, when they say something that we don't approve of or we want to stop the behavior, we, it's, it's a teaching moment. And I, 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 somehow that always seems to be something that I think a parent has to be aware of so that we don't get into that all the time with our kids. You know, I hit, they hit their brother or their sister over the head. You know, and it, rather than teaching them about what they're supposed to do, you want to really, like, what you talk about in the book is like to really understand, help them to understand what they were feeling and why they did it and, and then go from there. It is an opportunity to do that, yes. I mean, I think that for many of us, our instinct is to stop the behavior right away. Hey, leave him alone. Don't do that. Um, you know, go sit over there, um, that sort of thing. Um, and that doesn't teach our kids what to do in the moment. And as you say, they need to first understand what was the feeling behind the behavior. Why did I punch him? What was making me, oh, I was mad. Oh, I feel like it was, you know, he wasn't waiting his turn, and I need to tell him that. A child needs to learn their own feelings first before they can figure out what to do in a situation. And scolding them or sending them to the timeout chair doesn't teach any of that. You know, that said, this can be very hard to do in the moment. And I wouldn't want parents to beat themselves up if they can't do this every time. You know, uh, if, if, if you can acknowledge a child's feelings 10 or 20 or 30% of the time, you're, you're, you're helping them. You're, and you're doing well. I don't want parents to feel guilty that they can't do this all the time. Because for many people, it's counterintuitive. And it's very hard to change the way you talk to, to kids or to people in general if that's not how you were raised yourself. I think what you have to be aware, and then at this end, obviously, this is what you're talking about is, you know, good communication and you're teaching. Parent, oh, teaching uh, parents how to develop good communication strategies or skills. And you don't do that all the time. We don't do that all the time anyway, like we were talking about before. You don't do it with adults. You don't do it at work. There are many times that you don't say what you wished you had said. Um, right. And I, yeah, so, but if you, I think it's important to learn what those good communication strategies are, at least to have them in your toolbox and you can use them. Maybe you don't use them all the time, but if 
half the time or three quarters of the time, that's a good thing. That's right. And we have a lot of stories in our book uh, with uh, examples of parents who have maybe haven't even started off um, acknowledging their kids' feelings, but then turn it around and and uh, um, it, it will give readers an idea of how they can do it in their own home. Give us some examples that you have in the book, and let's take a topic. I mean, I know, okay, you cover, because these are difficult, lying, tattling, uh, we talked about hitting, but uh, lying, that's a good one. So, and, and it's different, uh, lying at two is different than lying at seven, right? Well, isn't that the truth? Yes. So, <laughs> I, I think lying is a, it's, it's a very hot topic when I bring that up with my, with my parents in my groups. Um, it's, it seems to be a topic that's different from, say, a kid who draws on the walls. You know, with kid, I, 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 of my three kids, I think they all went through a phase where they started to draw on the walls because they just didn't get it, and I hadn't, and I hadn't remembered to tell them, hey, drawing is for paper, not for walls. Um, but, I, you know, but parents don't think, oh, my goodness, my, my child drew on the wall. She's going to grow up to be a graffiti artist. You know? We just understand that this is something kids do, and they don't know, and we have to teach them. And lying is actually in that category as well. Kids will say things that aren't true, not because they're going to grow up to be a sociopath, but because they, perhaps it's they're embarrassed about something, or it, it often represents a wish for something that they wish had happened, and they don't quite understand, at age, especially age two, three, four, five even, that... Um, that it's in, that that we shouldn't be lying. That we should be telling the truth most of the time. Um, so we have some wonderful stories in the book that from Joanna's family, um, her oldest, who 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 as he got older, got better at, at telling the truth. Um, I, I'm going I'm to read you this the story when he was little. I think he was two, and he was playing with his little friend Ian while um, his mother was chatting with Joanna, and they weren't really paying close attention, and suddenly Ian was on the floor wailing, saying, Danny pushed me. So Joanna hustled Dan away and asked him what happened, and Dan replied somberly, a bad man pushed Ian down. <laughs> right? Clearly he needed some distancing from this awful deed. He couldn't say, I did it, right? <laughs> and then when he was three, he came in, from playing in the backyard with a torn pocket from dangling from his pants, and Joanna asked, what happened? And looking at the pocket, Dan gave it some thought and then carefully stated, let's, let's just say a boy ripped it. it <laughs> he couldn't, I couldn't help laughing. He was getting a little closer to putting himself on the spot, but he wasn't quite there yet. Um, you know, Those are very creative reading. answers. But by the time he's, you know, by the time he's grown, he's writing apology letters when, when, when he did something wrong because he learned um, that it's better to fess up than, than to hold in a, a secret. I can tell you a story from my own child's life. Uh, my oldest was, um, he, when he first got a, a, an email address, this was in the days when you couldn't, there were certain uh, words you weren't allowed to use if you, were, if you had a kid's account, and he used a word he wasn't supposed to use. And our whole email got shut down, and we were told that he had said something that he wasn't supposed to say, and he, he denied it. He said, I didn't say it. I never wrote that. Of course, we believed him. And months later, he came to me, and he said, Mom, it's true. I really did write it. And he was so upset and so distraught. And I said, it's hard to tell the truth when you're, you were worried about what I was going to say and you knew you shouldn't have done it. I bet you regretted it. And he said, yeah. 
And then a, a, a couple months later, his sister, who was six years younger, stole, took, I shouldn't say stole, took some of his Halloween candy and hid it in his room, in her room, and he discovered it. And I thought, oh my goodness, he's going to be so angry with her. But he, and he said, well, you know, did you take my candy? She said, no, I didn't. And then he looked at her. He said, look, I can see it. It's right there under your shelf. <laughs> and he said, I bet you wish you hadn't taken it. You know, sometimes you say things that aren't true, and what you find out is you just feel bad about it, so it's better just to tell the truth. And I thought, well, he learned the lesson, didn't he? And he was so He absolutely did. <laughs> he's a budding therapist. He's either going to be a psychologist <laughs> or a psychiatrist if he's doing that at this age. Uh, those are good stories. I'm going to add one because I had three boys two years apart, and I always remember when if they were left alone for three minutes and something happened, the two older ones would look to the baby who didn't know how to talk and blame it on him. Like, who did this? And of course, they uh-huh. were pretty safe because he could, <laughs> that was, a, and, and they u- used that until, of course, he learned how to talk and then it became a different issue. But uh, right. it, I'd always used to laugh to myself because, um, yeah, blame it on the one who can't defend himself. But they right. do, I mean, they all have tactics, right? Yeah. All right, so that's lying. And um, oh, what about... Yeah. Well, tattling is another one. That's another one that you address in the book. I never liked yeah. tattlers. Somehow, yeah. Uh, even, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the, the problem with tattling is that it's, it's one child trying to get, it's often one child trying to get another in trouble. Um, and parents say to me, I, I wish they felt like they were on the same team together. I don't want them to be telling on each other and trying to get each other in trouble. Um, But if we take punishment out of the equation, and if one child comes to me and says, you know, my sister, she she touched the stove and we're not allowed to, um, if if my response is, oh, I'm glad you told me that because that's that's a dangerous situation, um, then then we're reframing it. It's not a tattling. It's her trying to make sure that her sister stays safe. Um, a story from, from my own life, that's not actually in the book, but my, when my son was um, in, I think he was in first grade, they got um, hot lunch. There was a special day, and we ordered hot lunch for him, and it was pizza, and he was sitting next to his friend at lunch, and um, his, his friend was goofing around and poured his drink over my son's piece of pizza, so my son couldn't eat it. <laughs> And he came home ravenous. I couldn't figure out what happened because here I'd ordered him pizza for lunch. It was a special day. And then he, he told me that, that his friend Ben had poured, I think it was actually soda, on, on his pizza so he couldn't eat it. And I said, oh, my goodness, you know, you must have been hungry. Did you tell the teacher? Did you get another piece? He said, oh, I couldn't tell the teacher because then my friend would have gotten in trouble. And I couldn't, you know, I didn't want to do that. And I thought, well, that is the problem with getting kids in trouble. What I want, you know, for, for my son and for his friend is to say, this is a problem. You know, you were having fun. You thought it would be funny to pour soda on his pizza, but now he doesn't have anything to eat. What can we do? And that's the general approach that we are uh, advocating for in our book, is to look at conflicts and problems and say, this is a problem. What can we do about it? How can we solve it? How can we make amends to a child who doesn't have lunch? Um, rather than just getting getting somebody in trouble. Well, your book has been called, I guess by the Boston Globe, The Parenting Bible. So it's a pretty heavy description. And 
I'm thinking about that was different the, for parents. the original How to Talk book. Ours is a sequel. We haven't quite well, earned that title yet. <laughs> we'll say that you are going to earn that title. Uh, but but just given that, um, because it is your book is a significant book, but parents are very different. How does that work? I mean, you have parents who have come from families where they or they have, uh, you know, you have you have parents who are teachers. You have parents who come from certain backgrounds that make it easier for them to adapt some of these strategies. And then you have parents who don't. Or it's, they've come from families that have really not you know, helped them, or they haven't. They they they're. It's more difficult for them. Maybe they have less of an education, whatever. How does that work? I mean, in terms of like, as I say, following these strategies. Well, I think the way people learn these strategies is from the stories and the examples. And that's why we have filled the book with lots and lots of stories and examples of how to use, how to apply these principles. Um, it, you're right. It's, it's, it's difficult if you haven't been raised with um, a, a parent who acknowledged your feelings or gave you choices. And, and I'll have parents say to me, well, you know, choice? What choice? He has to take a bath. He has to get his shoes on. We have to go to the car. Um, and so we have lots and lots of examples. So for exa- you know, I'll give you an example. Um, a kid who has to take a bath, sure, he's got honey in his hair. We've got to get him cleaned up. <laughs> Doesn't mean that we can't give him some choices about how he takes a bath. Do you want to take a bath with your rubber ducks, or should we get the measuring cups? Would you like to have music on, or would you rather have it quiet? I even used to, this might sound a little weird, but I used to give my kids with, uh, snacks in the bathtub. Would you like a carrot, or would you like a piece of celery? They thought that was really entertaining to eat a, a snack in the bath. Um, so we're not telling parents what the rules should be. You know, do you need to take a bath tonight, or can we, can we do it every other night? That's up for parents to decide, and you know your kids. But there are ways to give kids some control and some choice in how they do it. So I, have a, I had a parent in one of my groups who had a heck of a time getting her kids to get out of the car and into preschool. She said every morning it was, uh, it was this long process. They would get distracted by anything in the, in, in the car and on the way in until one day she, they were talking about dragonflies. They were very interested in dragonflies. And so when they parked the car in the, in the parking lot, she said, let's pretend that we're dragonflies, and we're going to fly into our nest that's in the classroom. Well, these girls love to play pretend. And off they went flying through the parking lot together and into the classroom, and it was, it was a breeze that day. So she said, of course, the next day when they get to the parking lot, they want to be dragonflies again. And, and she has to do it with them, which everybody's watching her <laughs> go from the car to the, to the classroom pretending to be dragonflies, and and they expanded out to birds and, and other creatures. And you might say, my goodness, it's just so much work to, to be dreaming up various ways to pretend to fly into the classroom. But it really changes the mood, and it gives the, it gives the kids the idea, look, maybe we have to do this thing that you don't really want to do, but we can make it fun. We can, make, you know, we can connect over it. And, and I think when you can do that with your kids, it's like magic. I would agree with you. It does sound a little bit like I have to be really creative to get my kid into school, but um, maybe just have to, as you say, just kind of let loose a little bit and and, and not, you know, you you set up this kind of situation. I'm picturing the example you gave. You know, you're tired. You're trying to get your 
kid to go to school, to go to class, and, and you get locked, I guess it's a, you get locked into like how it should be done, and you just kind of have to step back from it, like in the situation you just gave, and hey, you know what, we can, it can be fun, it, can, it doesn't have to be um, so rigid, or, uh, you know, there, it doesn't have to be such a routine to doing this. Um, we probably right, have and, you, and, and you can still get your kids in into the classroom. It doesn't mean that you have to give up on that idea. You know, you, you, you're still going to, you know, we're so goal-oriented as adults, and we, we have these time limits. We can still do that. We can still get them in the door. But, we, you know, we can do it without, if we can do it without the, the yelling and the demanding and the crying and the whining, well, we all just feel a little bit better that morning. And so I, I, in my experience, it's worth it. <laughs> Yeah, it is worth it. What do you do? What do you do, Julie? Like when uh, tantrums? Let's just take that. That's our last, my last question. Uh, the tantrum, of course, happens when you're shopping with them, or you're in the grocery store, or you're buying clothes, or wherever you are. But it's in public. You're in a restaurant, wherever it is. How do you handle that? Well, when when my kids would start to have a, a screaming fit in public. I, I would, of course, try to take them somewhere private so that I wouldn't feel so self-conscious and, and I wouldn't be bothering other people. So if I was in a restaurant, I would take them out. Um, and then, depending on, how, on where they are, it, 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 I, I would ask myself, okay, why are they tantruming? What's behind this? Are they frustrated because they can't have something in the store, or are they just too tired or too hungry? Because how I handle a tantrum is really going to depend on What's behind the tantrum? Of course, once a kid, I, once a kid is in full-blown tantrum where they're screaming and they're crying, I, I, I think of it as they've gone over the edge. I, I, you know, I just have to wait till they land and they cry. And, and some of my, one of my kids liked to be held when he was crying. Another of my kids wanted me to you know, stay near but not touch. So I would do what, what was necessary in the moment to help, uh, to show them that I'm still there. Um, but my... My bigger strategy was to catch it before they fell over the edge. So as often you can see your kids escalating, like, I, I want to buy those cookies. I have to get them now. And, our, you know, what we tend to want to say is, no, we can't buy those. You know, they have ten ingredients I can't even pronounce, and we have three packages already at home. I'm not buying them, no matter how much you scream and cry. And then that's when the kids throw a big fit. So if I can instead remember to say, oh, those do look good. Look how colorful they are. I bet you wish they would make these healthy cookies so I would be comf- you would have a mom who would be comfortable buying them and we could eat them for breakfast. Ugh. Well, we can't do that. Now, often just that much would help a child de-escalate. I can't, I can't promise you it will work every time. But, to be but able at to least you can try it. I mean, yeah, I mean, I know there were times I would just, I would used to call it removing them from the playing field. As you say, I could sort of watch them decompensating before my eyes and I realize that we have to get out of here and <laughs> that's another way yeah. uh, <laughs> before it actually does happen well we I want to make sure that everyone uh, has a website that we can go to give us a website that we can go to to obviously find out more about you and the and the book how to talk so little kids will listen a survival guide to life with children ages two to seven and we're talking to Julie King so um, we do have a website. Book, book. It is the title of the book, How to Talk So Little Kids Will Listen dot com. And we have um, a blog post there where you can read more stories, answers to questions that people have written in to us about. And there, we have links to 
purchase the book, which is available in hardback and paperback and ebook and audiobook and, and uh, CDs. Um, they're all available. And if people want to see more about the kind of work that I do, I have a website, julieking.org, where you can read about my workshops and my consultations and everything else I do. Great. Thanks so much, Julie, for being on the show today. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 